there are those companies and orgs out there that it's like, all right, say the right words, put the hashtag on it. Maybe they just do something during an affinity groups month and that's it. They've checked the list on those things versus going, wait, wait, what should we be doing throughout the entire year that actually will have some real impact on the groups that we are trying to highlight? That's what you need to do. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick. Our goal here is to help uncover our unique money stories so we can guide ourselves towards a happy and thriving relationship with money. Thank you to all the returning listeners and welcome to any new listeners. I'm glad you're tuning in. This week, we have a fascinating guest. But before we get to the episode, if you have enjoyed this podcast, if you've enjoyed an episode or two, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. It definitely helps, and I would appreciate it. This week, I speak with Dr. Kimberly Watkins, an assistant professor in the Department of Financial Planning, Housing, and Consumer Economics at the University of Georgia. Dr. Watkins teaches courses in the financial planning program at UGA and conducts research on financial socialization, financial well-being, and DEI. Dr. Watkins discusses her personal journey towards better communication structures around money with her husband and how that influenced her interest and focus on self-reflection and introspection with her financial planning students. This episode sheds light on the importance of including all voices in the creation of financial planning models, methods, tools, and systems. It highlights the need for more research specific to Black Americans and other people of color and emphasizes the importance of practicing self-reflection and introspection for financial planners to build empathy and understanding with their clients. It was a delight to speak with Dr. Watkins. You'll hear her tone is incredibly passionate, but yet dedicated to her craft, her research. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Kimberly Watkins. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Thank you. I I feel really good in our little pre-recording conversation. You seem like a lovely person, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed your performance at FTA last year, so I'm pretty sure we'll have a good time. (laughs) Well, thank you. That That was enjoyable. So I thought we would go back to understand a little bit about yourself before we get into the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, I think it was while you were living in Virginia, before you were teaching, before you were researching financial planning, how did your relationship with money change, if anything at all, when, as what I've heard you say, you and your husband 
got out of debt and became debt free. Mm-hmm. So this experience of becoming debt free, how did it change your relationship with money? And did anything surprise you when you did become out of debt? Ooh, that's a good one in terms of a surprise. Well, so I can definitely start with a change. My husband and I, my husband's name is Daniel. We will have been married 15 years in October. But year four, we were just fighting left and right. And I saw it as sports. I've matured since. <laughs> um, we were just in a really bad spot to the point that my husband, who didn't believe in divorce, was saying that, you know, he didn't know if we would make it. And so one day I got to the door of our apartment and I was like, I don't want to fight anymore. I want us to figure out, you know, what is causing all these problems in our relationship And part of it was the inability to communicate effectively. But the other part was we had some financial strains that were going on there. We weren't openly talking about those strains, but they were affecting us. And so once we sat down, we realized that that was an issue. And so we went through a financial education program that's structured around, you know, just building up your emergency fund and getting out of debt and really just trying to change your behavior. So like the first day of this plan, I almost messed up, but he kept me on track. We were in a grocery store and there were these Christmas ornaments that were discounted. And I was like, oh, I fixed some, you know, we can do this. And he was like, well, is it in a budget? And I was like, the budget? <laughs> <laughs> cool thing though, I, they were a dollar then and then they became 25 cents later on. So <laughs> And that wasn't the budget. So we worked, we had to work together to, you know, hold each other accountable, talk about those financial goals, be able to understand each other, why we had different perspectives around money as well, too. And then the next thing, you know, like it took us a little over a year, I think, and we were out of debt. Part of that was also, I I was a former federal employee, so I had some help from Uncle Sam with my student loans, but we, we worked hard together to get that done. And we then like deemed ourselves Team Watkins <laughs> during this time as well. We, and we were the debt slayers. It was just so fun. And then once we were out of debt, I love my coworkers and the job that I have, but I didn't really care for my job. But I realized, wait, I can go do whatever I want to now. Like my employment isn't holding me to this position. I can go pursue that financial planning thing that I've always been interested in. Now, should I have started at a PhD level? Probably not, but I'm here now. (laughs) But that was the liberating part was that I got to go figure out that this dream that I had, was it something that I could really do? And we had the financial ability to do that. And the, the coolest thing was when payday came and I didn't even realize that we got paid because everything was fine. Like, whereas before it was like, okay, six o'clock is going to hit in mm-hmm. our account. And then I can do all these things. And like, no, it just happened and we weren't stressed. And so that's why, you know, the two of us getting together and working on it was a really a liberating experience. What was most surprising? I guess the outcomes related to our marriage, like how much we bonded and it strengthened us as in I I just didn't know that, you know, we would get to that level. Not to say that, you know, we should have had that expectation. It was just, we got put into a whole new phase of our marriage. And 
it has affected the way that we talk to each other today, how we talk to other people and how we talk to our children as well, too. It was just such a wonderful experience to learn how to become a better communicator and to empathize with people better. So I'm not paying Jack McCoy when I'm fighting with them anymore and wanting to win the case. But instead, we like we do things together. And that feels really good. So. Thank you. What a insightful story. I didn't know how you were going to answer that. And I, I appreciate that. What surprised you part, while the technical side of having your financial debt at zero, of course, is wonderful. And it kind of frees up the capacity to focus on the relationship and so forth. But what you said, it strengthened us and allowed you to empathize and communicate. I mean, these are these are lasting things that you yeah. even said your children are watching now. And I guess you're modeling that with your children. And I think it's a really good story on how when we lean into those discomforts around our money, we can also often reveal much about ourselves. So with this experience that you talked about, I know you do, or you speak to your students a lot about the power of introspection or self-reflection. When you first started this journey with trying to communicate with your husband, it sounded like it was at first, you used some verbiage that maybe sounded like me against him or you're doing this wrong. At what point, if anything at all, did self-reflection or introspection come in that helped you guys surrender to this us mentality? So we worked through a marriage book at the time that had us go through a lot of activities. And early on in our relationship, when we were just dating, Daniel and I realized that we had very different experiences when it came to our parents' marriage. His parents had a more idealistic relationship, whereas mine... You know, I remember one of our arguments was, but if we're not yelling at each other, that doesn't mean that you care. Like, if we're not in love, like, yelling means love. And, you know, later on, just having to go, oh my God, that's so toxic. Um, That was definitely a big part for us early on. We started to see how those, how our parents' relationship affected how we talk to each other. For myself, I know I got to a point where it's just kind of like, like I said, I was just going for the juggler every time. I didn't care to know about why I wanted to go for his juggler. Why Why do I need to win? Like we're in the thing together. So I had to sit with that and ask myself, what, what is it that I'm getting from this? Because all it's doing is destroying my relationship. So is it really worth that? To be honest with you, the sport felt, it it was fun. I I mean, like, I really wish that I had another reason for it, but it was just, it felt good to win. And it probably felt good to win because there were other areas in my life where I wasn't happy. And so I found something Mm -hmm. that, like, you want to go up against me? Like, I'm going to take you out. You know, that might have been the case. And for him, he had to realize that he was doing a lot of avoiding he isn't very confrontational and like it, it really needs to be like an emergency level situation sometimes for him to become confrontational. He, he just doesn't understand why people have to talk to each other that way. Fair. Sometimes you have to become that way, but he was really avoiding that. And so he had to work on expressing his opinions or his thoughts and feelings more frequently sooner as well, too, because he used to hold in a lot of stuff and then like explode. And so we worked through those activities together, or he worked on those specific activities for himself, whereas I had to learn, you know, how to make sure that I was giving him love and the way that he receives love. Same for him, as well as, you know, 
having to face the fact that you need something else to bring fun or joy into your life. It can't be wanting to put down your husband. Like, it's so horrible. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking about my past so now. <laughs> like, she, she had a lot of maturing to do for sure. So that has really helped with us, but also knowing those things about ourselves when we're talking to people, you know, how to best interact with them as well, too. So those issues, you know, because we worked on them great, but the stuff sometimes is always underneath the surface and you're not aware of it, right? We're just having to stay cognizant of that, not in just our relationship, but our relationships with other people, too. Again, thank you. I thought we were going to dive into your research much earlier, but I think this is so insightful for listeners because we all have our own relationships with money that at times, like you mentioned with your husband, avoiding that we're avoiding or not leaning into. And when we have a, a coupleship, certainly those um, unexamined stories can, or not can, they surface. Yeah. Your story is such a good example of when we lean into that discomfort, like I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, learn a lot about ourselves, but the other spouse, couple, whomever the other person we're interacting with, clients, and I understand now you're taking this perspective of self-reflection, introspection to your students. So maybe touch on what you're doing to kind of ask or invite your students to lean into their own discomforts. And why, why are you doing that in a financial planning course? So how I'm doing it recently, oh, my very wonderful colleague, Dr. Megan McCoy, I'm pretty sure you probably have already had her on the show or you know her for sure share with me some really cool tools for communication. So this semester, I finally had my students to go through the financial genograms and start mapping out where those beliefs and those behaviors came from and how is it impacting them today? And, you know, what do you want for your future as well, too? And these are all questions that you would sit down and talk to a client about potentially, you know, given the circumstances And I needed them to know their own money story, right? We all have something in our backgrounds that has led us to financial planning. And you you are like every other consumer out there as well, too. You have to manage these funds. So why are you behaving the way that you're behaving, the way that you do with money? So we got to explore that. (laughs) In terms of, you know, I appreciate the candor from my students, but it's also so saddening to the degree that the things that I experienced in terms of like when I was a kid and I'm darn near double their age, like they also went through some of those things too, because money hasn't just become this topic, this thing that we just talk about so openly with each other. And yeah, like my 19 to 23 year old students in this course have gone through the same thing too. So, so yeah, so, uh, so it's helpful for them to know as they're talking to their clients, because we talk a lot about empathy as well. You know, Mr. Empathy, Dr. Michael Thomas, he's a mm-hmm. lecturer here at UGA and did an amazing TED talk on it as well, too. So they have to watch it in class. And we talk about how it felt when they experienced empathy and when they didn't experience empathy when they needed it as well. So you put them in those places where they go, oh, yeah, I remember when so-and-so did this thing for me. And it really helped me to do X, you know? Yeah, I love that feeling and I want to carry it forward. And then I also let them know, like, you know, in terms of my own experience of receiving grace from an instructor, 
on a project that I submitted late that I thought I was submitting on time, but it was worth 50% of my grade. And she just took a few points off and I ended up passing in class, but otherwise it was going to fail. And as a result, that has influenced the way that I work with them. So I can be flexible with you when you're turning in your work because life happens. You need to talk to me, work with me on it, and, and we can go from there. And so they need to see like, all right, so we're talking about it. I know how it feels. And I need to see people doing this thing too. So that's my expression to them, you know, or in other ways as well in which they need empathy. And the reason why I do it is that if you're going to ask your clients to do these things, you need to know what is the process and how does it feel to go through it? So we always talk about, you know, people who say, oh yeah, just go open up a Roth. Like, yeah, you can just choose, <laughs> like, you know, Schwab, Fidelity, one of them, you know, just open up your Roth and start investing. Okay, so you've created your account. That's the easy part. <laughs> you may have even gotten to the part where you're able to tell it, oh yeah, I, I want a Roth. All right, yeah, let's do that. Now let's choose the investments that you're going to put in that Roth. What? Yeah. <laughs> investments. Yeah, like you can do so many different things and they will see all the different options that come before them and it's overwhelming. And so before you tell someone, just do this, you need to have experienced what this is and you will find out that there is no just in it at all. It's far more complex than what you think the process is. Even if you went through it and you thought it was okay, you need to understand that everybody can't doesn't have the same experience either. And so that's the reason why they need to reflect on their own behaviors, their own biases, and how that can affect the client-planner relationship as well too. And you will definitely be able to get that a lot better in terms of understanding if you've gone through that process as well. So that's why pushing them get a lot of crickets sometimes because they haven't thought about those things. And it's just really important that you understand that this feeling that you're having right now in this moment can be the same feelings that your client may be experiencing as well too. So push through it and get, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, I help you to be a better planner in the end. At least I think so. so. Yeah, I mean, I I appreciate so much that you're you're doing that with your students. You know, education is often focused on the technical side that we're learning, and especially in our industry, that empathy is so important. And uh, yeah. yeah, Dr. Michael Thomas was on the podcast, and we definitely did talk about financial empathy. And I think it's it's wonderful that you're putting people in those uncomfortable not putting inviting them to go in those uncomfortable situations because. The the financial planning field is full of those situations. And if we're not prepared for it, then, you know, maybe we're not doing the best we can to help people aspire towards financial well-being. So wonderful that you're you're doing that with your students. I think it's so incredible. <laughs> I tell them all the time, I'm like, your technical competency is vital, but it's probably not going to be the thing that's going to attract clients to you or keep your clients. You can be little baby Michael Kitsis all day and all night. That's great. But for the vast majority of folks, they need to feel, not just see these numbers, they need to feel the effect of these recommendations and implementing them as well too, and feel seen and feel heard. So that's why I press them because I have a handful of students, it's, it's been fewer in years, where they're just like, well, people are just paying me for my expertise, my advice. They're coming to me to 
tell them what to do and they're going to do it. I'm like, that's cute. <laughs> and so if I put them in those situations where they have to think through the things that they're going to tell those people who are paying them to tell them what to do, then they might stop, pause and think, oh, there's a little bit more going on here. And I'm feeling some things I haven't felt. I don't know if I've ever felt this way before, <laughs> but yeah. All right. So now you know that there's more that you have to do than just tell somebody like this is the most optimal financial recommendation. And that's enough for them to do what you want them to do. I, it would be nice if it were that easy, but it's not. So, you know, I wish I had you as a professor when I was going through my financial planning journey at the beginning. Because yeah, it's so many times we're like, look at these calculations. This is beautiful. How are you not implementing this? And you said something really important is that people do want to feel seen, heard, and valued. And the numbers don't always do that. So with your work life, you have, from what I understand, teaching that Mm -hmm. we're talking about here, but then research. So what is really interesting you right now in terms of research? What brings life to Kimberly when she thinks about researching certain areas of this financial planning profession? Oh my gosh. So anything related to marginalized populations and financial well-being and DEI and financial planning. And so why marginalized populations matter so much to me was that my very first semester as a PhD student, I went to the literature, the body of knowledge to find (laughs) out more about the investment practices of Black women. And I found absolutely nothing, at least definitely nothing within our our field, right? And I (laughs) tell everyone, I kind of had this mini existential crisis in my kitchen that day because I was like, I don't exist in the literature. Like, I'm not here. Why am I not here? Like, I matter. I, you know, they're, they're Black women. You know, why does that, why is this not here? And, and unfortunately, far too many people, you know, one, I get, you know, our, our um, faculty oftentimes use secondary data. So they're restricted to whatever variables are in there. And the sample sizes for non-white populations tend to be pretty small. So they group us all together, even though it's the worst thing to do. That's part of the reason. The other part has been like, people just don't think that race matters. It's not an issue. You know, we're all the same and the end, you know, it should not matter that you're black in your investment practices versus like a white woman or a Latinx woman. Right. And we know better than that. So that's the reason why I, um, focus in on this area. And initially I was worried about doing it because I didn't want to be pigeonholed. And then as I became a faculty member at um, University of Alabama was my first position, I was like, you know what? No, even if I am pigeonholed, that's fine. What I don't want is for another person to go look for literature on themselves and they can't find it. They don't see themselves there. I'm like, I am here and the amazing group of people who I work with, we are here to fill that gap in. And so that's why I've decided in life, yep, if it's anything to do with race, gender, and different identity, sexual orientation, religion, like, you know, incorporating those things. And then the intersection of those things as well, too, is necessary because if we don't account for it, 
but you want to come up with, you know, the implication section and the recommendations in terms of going forward, like you're going to come up with policy that's going to have adverse effects or non-existent effects because you did not account for those differences amongst the groups. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm having fun reviewing papers and pushing back <laughs> and the, the grouping of um, racial groups without at least discussing, you know, why that's problematic, but also being able to work on work that can maybe let other grad students like my former PhD student self know that this work is important and it's OK for me to do this. So so that's why. I love that area of research. And as far as DEI within financial planning, it's just, you know, things are just better when it's diverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and like yesterday, I had a guest speaker in my class. His name's Ryan Pope, who works for Madeira Wealth Management. And Ryan is going through this period where he's understanding his privilege as it relates within his firm and his personal life as well, too. So he gave these great book recommendations to my students, but he talked about how the industry or the profession, however you see it, is always harping on diversification within like, Mm. you know, asset management, diversification, you got to have it, right? Like we know, like you need to be able to hedge whenever they're down markets or up markets taking advantage, whatever um, strategy you go, but diversification is key. So if we're going to be talking about diversification within like, you know, our asset management, and you think that's important there. Why is it not also important in our workforce as well, too? I just love what they've been able to do at his firm in terms of they are making um, applications anonymous so that they can't even discern where the person went to school, their background, ethnicity, age, anything like that that could potentially affect their biases that they are aware. They know that they have them. So they're like, right, let's remove these things to mitigate the impact of those biases. And it has helped them with starting to diversify their workforce. In addition to that, they're building a relationship with a local institution, so Clark Atlanta University, and not just going in and cherry picking students or whatever. They're like, no, they're sitting down and they're talking to them to figure out what is it that CAU needs that will help them to get the best students and prepare students so that they're ready to go into Madeira or just the work of the the profession in general and be well prepared for it. And I was just sitting in the back. Oh my God, I'm in my own little amen corner by myself because I love all my students. But in this particular class, every single one of them, white male. (laughs) You know, but, but they're open. And I love that about this generation too. So it was just really amazing to see this white man talk about his struggles and why, you know, and his current, you know, that past and current struggles is like, not gone. Like mm-hmm. those biases are still there. He's just more aware of them now. And the efforts that his firm is putting into place to make things better. And so that representation is important because I don't want another student of any background to say, well, financial planning is only for wealthy people. Mm. It's only for white people. It's only for old people. You know, no, it's for everyone. And you can be a part of that story too. In fact, you're needed to be a part of that story. So all the DEI efforts that are out there now, I do 
hope that they are more about being action-based instead of performative like Madeira, because it really will help to make the profession so much better by having those different experiences be a part of it to truly help people increase their well-being at the end of the day, because that's what matters, right? Like we just want to make sure that folks are getting the services that they need from individuals who understand their unique circumstances and backgrounds. So that's why we got to diversify. You know, as you were talking about this whole, your answer, you you were just lit up the entire time. So I'm so happy you decided to not pigeonhole yourself, but focus on this area that is, I can tell, very important to you and for everybody in this industry and our greater society. Interesting that now that individual, the the younger Kimberly, who's looking at the journals, who couldn't find the research that you were looking for, thanks to the work you're doing, the publications you've done, people can see that they do exist in some of the articles that you published. Yeah, I have they to. Do. They're tiny, but we're building on. It. Yeah, yeah. I think in one of your papers, I read that I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was around thirteen percent of a certain type of study had included Black Americans in the sample, and it was a significant amount, which really makes me think, as you were talking about, yeah, these policies and systems that are created based on the research really aren't fair when they aren't taking account to the diversification that you're talking about. So this work really matters. And so when you look at your work and the the work that is ahead, because Whatever the percentage, it's low, 13% in this case. I can't recall the specifics of it, but it's a low representation. What are you hoping for as you really push this information through? Is it more Ryans coming to their employers to be interested in diversification, DEI? You said performative versus action-orientated. Maybe maybe touch on that of what you would like to see more and explain the performative versus action and I can't help but say this, but one time I saw a large, large, large tech company and it said, diversity inclusion matters. And someone screenshotted their board of directors and they were all 65-year-old white males. <laughs> That's the performative piece that I was going to speak of. I'm not going to say the specific conference, but in, the individual in charge you know, launches the conference with a, a speech and talks about the importance of diversity. And it's a white man. Okay, cool. Allyship is needed and appreciated as long as, you know, it is, it's good allyship, of course. And then the next person to come up was a woman. She's white, but we have a woman. But then every speaker afterwards is a white man. And they're all talking about the importance of diversity. But yet there is the disconnect that the group of individuals who were chosen as keynote speakers, who were representatives from the organization. There was no diversity with the exception of that there was just one woman who was a part of the group. There are those companies and orgs out there that it's like, all right, say the right words, put the hashtag on it, or, you know, maybe they just do something during an affinity groups month and that's it. You know, they, they, they check the list on those things versus going, wait, wait, what should we be doing throughout the entire year that actually will have some real impact? on the groups that we are trying to highlight. Like that that's that's what you need to do. <laughs> like that's the action steps. And to know that DEI is not this thing that you tap on in the end, that it is built into every part of the operations within the firm, the profession. It's not just something that's 
good to do oversight in the end, you know, check that off the list. Like, no, you can do it in all of the operations, not even just in the recruitment phase of it as well, too. And so being action oriented looks like that in terms of making sure that you are putting it forth in your strategy for the operations for your firm, your vision plan that you have for it as well, too. And also just being honest that if you're not at the place where you want to be, this is what we're doing. And making sure that's communicated to not only the public, but also your employees as well, too, because you want them to be on board with it as well, or at least understand that these changes are taking place and how you can help in the process as well. So that's what I mean in terms of like being action oriented versus, you know, figuring out whatever hashtag we're using this month to Mm. seem like you're in alignment with these DEI principles. And so that's very important. And it's not just even about, you know, going out and hiring people from different backgrounds. It's also making sure that they have the accommodations that they need to be successful when they get into that firm. So for example, um, this really cool piece that I read, I think it was written by Megan Lertz about, and also you talked to a lot of financial planning students reason why they're interested in financial planning is because they have had some adverse experience. This happened to grandma when grandpa died or my parents struggled. This is not, but they can't even have their family members as, as clients because they don't meet the AUMs, right? And so like you could help them outside of work. But when you're talking about building up your client base, people turn to their social professional networks, right? It's like, that's a good place to go. Well, who are you supposed to go to if you didn't come up in a background that you know is filled with affluence or someone who can like meet those men's or someone who can introduce you to those individuals? Mentorship has been a big push for a lot of firms to just make sure like, you know, folks are understanding, you know, these are the different tools that you need to be successful, but it's not just mentorship alone, but it's also that sponsorship piece as well, too. It's like, how do I help to make sure that, all right, I'm mentoring you, but I'm also helping you to gain access to the types of clients that my our firm wants to have? How do I, you know, get you built into these networks as well and become a part of it? So then that helps you to be successful as well, too, because the vast majority of us, you know, if you're coming from a marginalized background, you don't have those folks to turn to your aunt, uncle, mom, dad, like, you know, collectively, they might be able to come close to that AUM. But for the vast majority of folks, that's not the case. So coming up with those different compensation structures as well to be able to help folks who look like you. It's really important in terms of not just being able to provide the service, but also helping your your employees have a purpose, you know, or feel like, you know, they have a stronger sense of purpose as well too, because they're able to help the people who they love and the people who they thought that they were going to be helping as well too, when they chose the major. So, um, I hope I answered the question. <laughs> I feel like I may have went off rails with it. But um, those are some of the things in terms of like being action oriented for sure that I think are important. You answered it so well. I hear you saying like, get rid of the checklist and more so this has to be incorporated in the way of being, like your way of being so that, you know, for, for many of us, and I speak for myself, I, I never 
to that extent, I've never felt that experience that you did that I don't exist. So it's important for us to have it in our way of being, which I think ties back to that self-reflection or that introspection that we talked about how how do we communicate with our spouse better so that we could be more relational in terms of our financial lives that you explained so well with your husband and yourself. But this also applies to what we're talking about here is what do I need to learn about myself in order to be that Ryan that's speaking at your uh, class that I could tell you just enjoyed so much. And I think they're doing great, great work. Yeah, them and a lot of other firms as well, too. So I specifically mentioned him not to exclude anyone, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but just because he was, he was just in class yesterday and I, I wasn't expecting that at yeah. all. Um, Because in fact, when he was talking about DEI, I saw it, I was like at the bottom of the list and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, when he started talking about his experience, I was like, oh my God, wow. Yeah, I got to perk up and listen. He did you on the circuit to uh, talk about it. Well, with with your passion and, I mean, certainly our profession requires more and more conversations like we're having here today. I understand you're embarking in an interesting research project where you're looking at the client's money script inventory, which on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the money scripts and we've had Brad, Ted and Rick as a part of that all on the podcast. So what are you doing with this money script inventory? So the client's money script inventory, you know, survey that people take to try and understand more about like those money narratives that they have. So do we have, you know, there are, I believe, five different narratives that exist with like money avoidance, money vigilance. and Status the worship. Shaping. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, as well too. And so, you know, you go through these questions and you answer them and then, you know, based off your answers, you can then get placed into a specific inventory. So I believe that you might have like a dominant one, but others that might be close as well too, because you know, we're human. So we're not just one thing, but your dominant one pretty much tells you like how you're viewing money, what you're thinking about money and how those thoughts and your views and attitudes are influencing even your behaviors or even your relationships as well, too, because you've got two different people with different money scripts that can create conflict if you don't know how to work with each other. Like my husband and I are two different people when it comes to money. He loves to spend it. <laughs> I like to spend it too, but we spend it differently even. And this is why all our savings are automated. <laughs> you know, so that's the reason for it is really just this cool tool to help someone to understand themselves. And, you know, those messages that they're carrying in their head about money as well. So so that's my understanding of the Constitution Inventory. Miranda, she is a Black woman. She's worked as a a certified financial planner. And now she's a faculty at Texas Tech. And so basically, she was just examining the inventory and has some questions and wanting to know, if you were to give this inventory to a group of Black people, would we still see the same results as what was seen in the initial studies um, that tested the inventory? Because she was just like, I just don't think on its case, you know, like a prima facie case here, it, w- it wouldn't pass for Black people. Or at least, you know, the, the, she specifically said her family at first. And I was like, interesting. Well, maybe not just your family, but also like Black people as a collective, potentially. Or could it be Latinx folks 
as well, Asian individuals, because the sample was majority white. It was like over 90% white. So we were like, well, we really weren't accounted for in those initial studies to see if the findings would hold across different racial groups. And so that's the purpose of the study, because we can have amazing inventories that you can use as a practitioner or researcher as you're building to help practitioners as well, too. But if they don't account for those racial, cultural, ethnicity, just socio-demographic differences, right? The tool won't be as effective if we don't account for these things. And so before we even started work on the project, we actually did talk to Brad Plants about it because we're like, you know, we don't want them to think like we're taking a big shot at you. Mm-hmm. But instead, it really was just to make sure that the efficacy of the tool would be the best it can be, because we're not going to be 100 percent right across different groups. And so if it has to be tweaked for a specific set of groups, now we know why that's the case. And these are some of the things we might be able to do to really get to their true money narrative. So that was the purpose for the study. And the hope also was to start pushing more. So, I mean, this is prevalent with amongst like the financial counseling community for real terms, like there's no one size fit all approach to financial education, financial counseling and planning, right? It's all the personal part. It's still very important. But people also need to have tools that are culturally responsive and inclusive of those differences to make sure that you can help people reach those goals at the end of the day. Really, truly figure out what those issues are that are going on that may not appear if our sample isn't representative of all groups as well. And so that's the starting place. And in the hopes of going forward, when folks do create these tools to help them just be better practitioners, that we also account for those differences as well, too. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the results. And yeah, I, I are just so easy to talk about or talk to. And I can just, I mentioned it before, you you exude this this passion for the work that you're doing. And I think your work is inviting all of us who read it, who are influenced by it to join along you and many of the other wonderful people doing this work. So thank you for 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 doing the work you're doing. Oh, Sean, I'm just a little country girl. (laughs) (laughs) I really am. (laughs) But I do thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. It it took a while to figure out what that path was going to look like for me. And so I had to ask myself, like, all right, when you do talk about something, what's the thing that I may even cry about? Like, even early on, like, we were talking about something. (laughs) I started to cry. That's important to me there. (laughs) And so, yeah, I light up on this topic and topics specific to women, too. Like that, that always gets me. (laughs) So I'm happy I was able to finally get to this space. And I'm hoping that our work definitely will have a long lasting impact to help the profession for sure. Well, I most certainly think it will. I'm looking at the time here. I want to respect our time. I have a question that I ask everyone. So let's imagine you're at end of life and it doesn't matter how old you are. You're sitting on a front porch. It could be anywhere in the world that brings you peace. Maybe it's back in the country. <laughs> it's your country girl. But you're sitting on this front porch, looking out at a mountain, a meadows, ocean, lake, whatever brings you that peace. 
and you decide to take out a notebook and write down a letter to your children's children. I believe you have two twins mm-hmm. or yeah, twins. There's two, not two sets of twins, but. So you're sitting on this front porch and you decide to take out that notebook to write your children's children, a letter on what you learned from your experience on how to have a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a key message in that letter? I love that question. And the first thing that comes to mind is that it's okay to fail and failure should be expected. And it's good because it'll lead to growth. Um, You know, we talked about leaning into those uncomfortable situations earlier and just understanding that you're human. So you will fail, but there's so many lessons to be learned from that. And so I I actually talk about this a lot with my children now because, you know, I don't know what they're going to grow up to be, but it's important that they learn how to be vulnerable. Part of that is like having to go through situations that are kind of icky for them, right? But we talk about engineers and like how failure for them is like, you know, that's the norm. And that's how these beautiful things get created afterwards as well, too, in terms of like advancing society. And so if a whole industry of groups, not just engineers, but you know, professions can use failure to propel us forward. And yeah, you can definitely use it to propel yourself forward as well, too. So just learning how to be comfortable with that. But, and you don't sit in it either. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you, fail, you learn from it in terms of how are you going to take this moment, this experience and become a better version of yourself. But baby, you got to understand that that's going to happen and be OK with it. And you have support. As well, too. So, yeah, you fail, but, you know, you can still come to grandma or go to your parents. You know, I don't know how old they'll be. I don't even know if I'll be around for my grandkids. <laughs> I so late in life. <laughs> but with that letter, just knowing that they're not alone, even in that failure as well, too. So be OK with feeling, you know, learn from those experiences and also know that you're not alone, even when you do fail, that you have people there who can help you and support you as well, too, because you're loved. So. I think that's what I would write <laughs> if I had to write any one thing or a couple things to them. That is a, a wonderful message. And thanks so much for sharing that message and everything else with our guests or with our audience. I really appreciate you coming on today. If people are interested in the papers you were writing, your work, do you have a social or an online presence, LinkedIn, your website with the university? Yeah, so I have a LinkedIn account. So you can just pretty much change my name. To, I think it's, I don't know if it comes with Dr. Kimberly Watkins or just Kimberly Watkins and like the URL, but yeah, I'll come up. So LinkedIn, not very active on it, but I will get to you eventually. The best way actually to get a hold of me is email. And that's pretty simple. It's Kimberly.watkins at uga.edu. Watkins is W-A-T-K-I-N-S. Yes, that's the best way to contact me. And I also do have a biographical page on our college's webpage as well, too. And so I'm in the College of Family and Consumer Sciences at the University of Georgia and the Department of Financial Planning, Housing and Consumer Economics. And yes, that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so you can search for facts, UGA, Kimberly Watkins, and I'll pop up. <laughs> so all in the show notes so there could be some quick links well thank you so much for joining me and it's been a pleasure thank you so much john thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the most hated f-word podcast 
If you're still listening, well, maybe you really did enjoy that episode. And if that's the case, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that would be wonderful. Until next week, I hope you have yourself a great one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.